2 Peter chapter 3 is where we are this morning. It's March of 1980 that the ground began to shake beneath Mount St. Helens in Washington State. Some of us are old enough to remember the event. Some of us have only seen it on YouTube, uh, but the volcano started spewing steam. And in a very short time, there was the realization from geologists that this was very serious. And so by April of 1980, they had established a red zone around Mount St. Helens and closed it to all but Forest Service personnel and scientists who were doing research there. And everyone was evacuated, all except one 83-year-old man named Harry Truman, no relation to the president, um, but he is a guy who owned a lodge about six miles away from the base of the mountain, had lived there for more than 50 years, and was determined that he was staying no matter what, refused to leave. He told reporters, quote, there is no way that mountain has got enough stuff to come my way. It's a little more colorful even than that, but he was certain and his stubbornness made him famous at the time sort of a folk hero on the uh, on the news at that point and he rejected all attempts to evacuate him and so on the morning of May 18th 1980 he was one of 57 people who were killed instantly when that volcano erupted with such force that it leveled everything for at least 6 miles and then had debris spread for another 200 some odd square miles in that area and just created a general disaster in that region of southwest Washington state there's no way that mountain's got enough stuff to come my way. Famous last words. Truman is surely not the first nor the last person to speak with certainty and to say, this will not happen. I don't believe this will happen. I, I, I've seen what you say, whatever the facts, whatever it might be, I just simply do not believe it and yet ultimately proved wrong. In the first century, at the time of the Apostle Peter, there were false teachers religious teachers who are mocking the possibility that Jesus Christ would return. We've heard that. We've heard you proclaim that. You talk about this Jesus, this risen Jesus returning. We do not believe that at all, and they mocked it. It had been decades since Jesus had been crucified by the Roman government with the help of the Jewish leadership, and despite hundreds of eyewitnesses who claimed to see Jesus alive, resurrected from the dead, countless skeptics remained. Christianity rests on the truth that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and then was raised and, and by his resurrection, demonstrating that the crucifixion was sufficient. It, th these truths are fundamental to what we believe that Jesus Christ was not just some religious teacher who was martyred and, and that was the end of the story, but rather that he was the very son of God, the chosen one of God, who came as a sinless sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. And the resurrection then demonstrates that what he accomplished in that was sufficient to justify sinners. It was sufficient to bring us to God and to provide forgiveness for us. And so the resurrection is crucial, but even further than that, of similar importance, is the truth that the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, is returning to earth in power. That, that is taught repeatedly throughout the scriptures, centuries before Jesus ever came. The Old Testament prophets told of this coming of God's Messiah as a powerful king, as one who would rule and reign and who would also bring judgment on the earth. And we go back to just one example, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah writes, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established 
as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That sounds remarkable in our minds, but that is clearly the word of the Jewish prophets in the word of God, speaking to us and teaching that the coming of the Messiah will bring both the most decisive judgment of rebellious mankind on earth, but at the same time bring deliverance for God's people and the establishment of God's kingdom in peace. Ezekiel describes this in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 2. Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Prophet Joel repeats that, also speaks of this coming day of darkness, the the Lord's coming marked by inhabitants of the earth trembling and, and, and darkness covering the earth and gloom and fire devouring and the earth quaking. And man, he describes there in Joel being urged to repent. Over and over again, the scriptures said this is coming. Joel ends his um, section on Joel chapter two and says this, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Profound message that is repeated numerous times that there is coming a day of judgment and wrath and deliverance and the establishment of the kingdom. Jesus himself proclaimed this concerning himself. He refers to himself as the son of man in Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You see both pictures there. The earth, its tribes, mourning realizing that what has come is their judgment. It is the divine judgment of God that is descending upon them. And at the same time, he says, it is the deliverance of his people. And so Jesus promises this return in what he says will be great power and glory. So we've got the prophets, we've got Jesus. The apostles carry on the same message. And we could go to several places. I'll just give you one example, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. All that to say that the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ is a vital part of our Christian faith. Scripture teaches that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, that he rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven, and that he is returning. And and that then should shape how we are living today, the expectation that Paul had, that we who are alive will be caught up together with them. That sort of hope for the imminent return of Jesus Christ should be shaping our lives. If there is no return of Jesus, if there is no establishing of this kingdom, if there is no judgment of the world, then one 
would rightly question what we've put our hope in. What is it that we actually expect is going to happen? And, and if those things are not true, what is it we are living for? If, if not the belief that Jesus is King of Kings and that he is coming for his people and will establish his kingdom. That, that's why denying Christ's return is central to this false teaching that, that's infiltrating even into the church in the first century. If one desires to live without accountability to God, I want to do what I want to do, I want to live as I please, then you must believe there is no return of Jesus. You must dismiss the notion that you will somehow have to stand before God accountable. There must be, uh, there is no, if he is not returning, there is no incentive toward godliness and toward holiness because ultimately then what we're saying is this is all there is. There's nothing beyond this. There is no kingdom of God beyond this. But living in a godly way is central to 2 Peter. And that's where he started. If you remember chapter one, it wasn't so much focused yet on the return of Jesus Christ as much as to say, here's the effect on our lives. Second Peter one, we read that a few weeks ago, really lays out two premises. One is that God has provided, supplied everything you and I as believers in Jesus Christ need to live a godly life. He's given us all of the resources we need through the knowledge of him and his power he supplies. And then the response to that on our part is to cultivate godliness and goodness and self-control and brotherly affection that we are to then deny our flesh, put down the sin and, and, and the stuff that goes on in our own hearts. We're to battle sin and, and to seek to cultivate these things. But it's that, that, that growth in sanctification where he has provided what we need and is equipping us by his grace and power and we are responding in obedience. How we live today is dramatically affected by the fact that Jesus is risen and that he is coming again. And so that's why then when you got to chapter 2, it's that scathing denunciation of the false teachers. Peter just unloads on those who would deny this and, and, and show that, that they are ultimately being evil and, and give God's declaration of their judgment. So here in chapter 3, where we are this morning, we're going to take this in two parts, today and, and next week. Um, in part, he picks up where he left off in chapter one, and we're going to see him sort of establish some foundational principles that then will carry us into the next section next week when we pick up in verse 11. But essentially, he's, he's starting here almost, you could almost go from the end of chapter one right into chapter three. In chapter one, if you remember, toward the end, he had been saying, I will spend the rest of my life reminding you of these truths. I, I, I consider it my opportunity, my job, my role to continue to proclaim these truths to you and I will do that until the day I die. And he's gonna start with that same sort of theme here in chapter three. And also he's gonna pick up the other theme from the end of chapter one. If you remember the last few verses of chapter one, he's saying that we can, we can rest on this word of the, the prophets, those things foretold by the Old Testament prophets and those things commanded by the apostles who followed Jesus because... It is ultimately the word of God. They are speaking things that they have been moved by the Holy Spirit, and so they are proclaiming God's word to you. So there is authority as well, God-given authority in this truth. So with that in mind, let's pick up just the first four verses to start with in chapter three. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. First thing to note, beloved. He will use that term three times in chapter three. A reminder again that even in very straight, very direct sort of teaching that in some levels is, is, is challenging them, that, that is, this is not to be lost, that he loves them. And not only does he love them, but they are objects of God's love. You are, some of your translations might say dear friends, but the word is really a form of the word agape. It is to speak of the fact that they are objects of love. And he wants that unmistakably clear how he regards them. And then he picks up that theme from chapter one. I am stirring you up awakening you. As I said, when we went through chapter one, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prevent your drift. You're lulling to sleep on some of these things. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I don't want you to forget these things. And so some of what I'm saying, and, and he'll do it in the passage this morning, is stuff that you may remember well from the Old Testament, but I am reminding you of it because it's that important. I want to ground you in these things foretold by the prophets and then commanded by Jesus through his apostles. And then he explains why the importance of this, particularly in verse three, is I don't want you to abandon these truths, particularly when you come under the, the deceitful teaching of those who are lying. That there are deceivers out there who are actively lying to you about Jesus and about Jesus' return. He calls them scoffers. And, and what he's saying is they will repeatedly mock the very truths that you believe. They will mock the truths about Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a scoffer. And, and they will do that, he says in verse 3, for the very reasons that he discussed all throughout chapter 2 when he characterized who the false teachers were. But ultimately, he summarizes it in one simple sentence in verse 3 when he says, they do this following their own sinful desires. To sum up everything he said about the false teachers, what is it that they are after? They are after self-pleasure. They are after doing whatever they want to do without any kind of accountability. They care about themselves and they want to sin as they choose without any kind of consequence. And in fact, if they can drag you along, then misery loves company. And the focus of their mocking, as he says, is what we've already seen, predicted in the prophets, told by Jesus, commanded by the apostles, and that is that God's Messiah, his chosen one, will return, and when he comes, he will come in power, and he will judge the sinful rebellion of the world, and he will deliver his people into his kingdom. That's the teaching that's under fire in the first century, and I think you'd agree with me that is what is still under attack, just in different, more broad forms today. It is still the same sort of thing. The mocking today goes far beyond just the idea that the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. The, the mocking today goes to the point of saying, listen, I'm not interested in God. I don't care if you believe in God. I don't, I don't care or know if God exists. I want to do what I want to do. And so I really don't care uh, uh, any interest in him. Um, my desire is to live my own life. And so you find your God and you do what you want with your God. I'm not looking for him. And in fact, to echo what you see in 2 Peter, the attitude is we don't really see anything that even reflects of God anyway. As we're looking at the world, the world looks like it's pretty much the same. It's always run the same. And we don't see any kind of intervention, if you will, by God. And so we don't believe that he exists. And the world has gone on the way it has for millennia. 
So you keep your God and we'll go on and do what we want to do. That's the approach. And that's what Peter's responding to. And so to, to Jews, the false teachers were essentially saying, come on, tell us what your God has done. What's it like back in the days of Moses and Abraham? You got some stories from back there, but what's he done since? There's nothing we've seen. And to the rest, the attitude is, it's summed up there in verse four, that, that as far as we can see, the world is still running the same as it's always run. Nothing's changed. If anything, it's gotten worse. And you're going to try to tell us that God is going to somehow dramatically intervene in history and he's going to shake the earth. You Christians, you talk about this God coming who will shake the heavens and the earth. The skies will be changed. There will be darkness. There will be gloom. Fine. You keep preaching. The end is near. We're going to keep living the way we want to live. That was the scoffing. The reason Peter brings this up it's the, the, the warning again to us as believers that if we're not careful, that same line of thinking gets into our own minds that we're just living for self. We're just living for now. There are no real boundaries. And the only thing to really fear is fear of missing out. You know, we might miss out on something exciting or enjoyable or fun if we get so concerned about holiness and following after him. So how does Peter respond? How does he urge his readers essentially to stay grounded in the truth, to stay steadfast. And I, I'm going to suggest you he focuses on two things, pattern and patience. God's pattern of working in earth's history, God's pattern of shaping earth's history, and also God's patience for humanity. That he's going to say that both of these things counter what you're hearing from the false teachers. The pattern of what God has done through history and the patience that God has for humanity. The pattern first, verses five through seven, Verse five says, for they, the false teachers, they, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so the false teachers claim all things continue as they always were. Can't really point to anything that we can say, well, that was God sort of shaping the earth in any way. It's just that they are deliberately asserting, and certainly you carry this over into 21st century thinking, and this has become almost the, the, the religion of the culture, that all of it just happened. It came into existence Somehow, we don't really know how something came from nothing, but it came and it hasn't changed since. If anything, it's just sort of evolved, but, but the basic substance of it is unchanged. And so if you expect us to believe that this God will come and shake the earth and bring upon his judgment, we've never seen anything like that. that that's what the first, the, the first century false teachers are arguing, and it's just a modified form of what we see today. So Peter responds, as he did in chapter 2, by going back to the Old Testament. To say, well, well let, me, let me show you a couple of things, because I've already told you, the end of chapter 1, that I am bringing God's word to you as I believe it to be the authority, because I believe it is God who has given this word through his prophets, through the writers of the Old Testament, that it is God who has moved them, and so I am speaking to you from God's word on the authority of that. And he cites two specific examples, creation and the flood. The, the, the two from Genesis, again. Concerning creation, he says in verse 5 that the heavens existed, but the earth was formed 
Well, if we go back to Genesis 1-2, we get a description of, of, in the creation account itself of what he means. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's a picture of an uninhabitable sort of creation, an earth that exists but is not the earth as we know it. And so what changed it? What, what makes it now this glorious, bountiful, flourishing creation in which man is placed and man can dwell? What, what changed it from that which was formless and void into what it is? The word of God. God spoke. That's what we see in Genesis. And that's what Peter says here. It was the word of God that did it. Genesis 1 verse 9 says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Peter says, first example of God shaping earth's history in a powerful way. You have this naturalistic view that says somehow it all came into being, Nothing's ever changed. It just sort of happened and, and it's all the same and it unfolds and there's no divine providence or intervention. It always, it continues as it always has been. Peter says, no, there was actually a time when, when it was uninhabitable, when it was void and without form and then God spoke. God said, let there be and in that then the earth was formed. And so in Genesis, we repeatedly see that language, let there be, God said, and, and God creates. One commentator writes this, he says, the, whole, uh, the world God created was initially watery chaos, unformed and undeveloped. Human life could not have existed if the world were left as it was. The world, however, was formed, that is, it took shape by God's word. That's what he's going to emphasize in verses 5, 6, and 7. There's some statement in each of those verses to refer to God's word, God speaking, that God accomplished this through his word. In this case, it's forming. The Greek word for formed there in verse five means to held, uh, hold together or join together. And it's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.17 to speak of the work of Jesus Christ with creation when it says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Um, all things came into being through him, and he is the sustainer. He's the one that brings it all together and, and keeps it joined together so that we're able to enjoy life on this earth. Through Jesus, God formed the earth. But Peter's main point, as I said, is this happened because God said it, because God spoke. There was a creation that was uninhabitable until God spoke. It's also clear from Peter's description, God somehow used water, in, in this forming of the earth. And so Peter then goes from there to say, in fact, while we're talking about God shaping earth, let me tell you something else he did with water. And he refers to the flood, when God deluged the world and it perished, he said. That's his second example. Primary example of God judging the earth. Those who were claiming in Peter's day, God doesn't intervene. We should not expect God's judgment. If there is a God, we're not, we're not looking forward to some day of the Lord. We don't think Jesus is returning. Those who claim that God did not intervene must then reject the Genesis flood. They must say that, uh, that, that, that was something else. It was just a myth. 
It was a small scale sort of thing that was just meant to make a larger point, but it certainly wasn't the fact that the world was deluged and perished, as Peter says here. Peter's point in verse 6 is that the world, as it existed at that point, perished. It's important to note that Peter does make a distinction here. He uses two different words for the earth and the world. The earth that is formed in verse 5 and the world that perishes in verse 6. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, he says this, if, and using again the example of the flood, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly using world there twice, and it's clear that when he says world, he at minimum means all of humanity. He's not speaking about the entire earth in the sense that the earth went away or perished. That's the distinction between earth and world. But he's talking at minimum about humanity and culture and all that man is doing and accomplishing. All of that perishes at the flood. And so the point of verse 6, the world perished, but not the whole earth, that he will describe in what's coming in, in verse 7. All of creation was made by God. He forms it. And then God, we know from the Old Testament, established his law. Beginning with Adam and Eve and then carrying on through Moses, establishes his law. And, and what we see, particularly in Genesis chapter 6, is his law is being broken and ignored continuously. It is as if evil is happening all the time in every place and the world is just overcome with evil and so God intervened in judgment. And so what we have described in Genesis 6 through 8 is a global flood where God's judgment comes on man's evil. And one family, Noah and his family, find favor from God and they are rescued through the protection of the ark, but the world is deluged and perished. Verse 6 says the means of God's judgment. Once again, water and the word. Interesting note on the water. John Calvin writes this, says, Nature is not enough to support and maintain the world, but rather it contains the material for its own ruin whenever it may so please God. The flood in Noah's day was a cataclysmic judgment, God's wrath being poured out on the world. It was overwhelmed with floodwaters at God's direction. He spoke. Separate, but worth considering. If you've never thought deeply about the flood and the effects of the flood on the earth, um, I mentioned to you at the beginning Mount St. Helens, there are some fascinating correlations from scientists, geologists, who have studied the aftermath of Mount St. Helens and said, wow, things that we once said could not happen apart from thousands or tens of thousands of years of age, stratification and erosion and layering and all of these fascinating things that we've studied and said, this takes long periods of time, actually happened in months, in days and months, ha happened in, in just a, from the, the one event and some aftershocks, some uh, continuing spewing of steam over the next month or so, but in a relatively short time, the landscape is dramatically changed. 600 feet of elevation is added and all sorts of things take place that are implications. And I would just suggest to you, those of you who want to go down the YouTube rabbit trail on this, is, is look at some of the things that geologists have said about the flood and Mount St. Helens and some of the correlations of how an earth that God created with age could also be dramatically shaped in, in incredible ways by a global flood. Peter, though, the, the, the flood is 
representing really a, a temporary reversal of the order that God brought to chaos. There was this chaos, God establishes order, and now the flood represents the, 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 the upsetting of all of that. And also, for Peter now, what he's really trying to say is that represents the, the promise of the fulfillment of this day of the Lord. He, he's established this pattern that, yes, God has shaped the history of the earth. So God will do it again. And that's what he says in verse seven. By the same word, the word that spoke earth into form, the word that spoke forth the flood, by the same word, the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse five, Peter began with the heavens and the earth. He shifts to the perishing of the world in verse six. And now he concludes with this promise of judgment to come again to the heavens and the earth when God dramatically intervenes in the history of creation to bring about this day of the Lord judgment. It, it, it indicates here a catastrophe that includes the heavens and the earth. Uh, more importantly, he says, by the same word, it will happen because God has spoken it, there will be this judgment on what we know as the, the universe around us that will include the earth. And so God will speak, he will use fire, and even the present cosmic system around us, it is, it is not destined to remain unchanged. God will destroy and he will make new. And Peter, just in this rebuke of the false teachers, says, what you're seeing the heavens and the earth and why you are saying it all seems to continue as it's always been, it is because God in his grace is preserving it until this day of judgment. And when he does, it will be changed dramatically. And he's done it before and he will do it again. The, the point I think for you and I before we go on in verses eight and nine is just, it, it is a good reminder, Peter's teaching here in chapter two and again in chapter three, is a good reminder to us of the importance of the Old Testament. Because what, where does he go back to? He doesn't go sort of this, this crazy notion that, well, the Old Testament, that's a different God, or that's a whole different time. That's not really relevant to us. No, he says these things that, that we see about God and his character, these are true, and this is who God is, and he's pointing us constantly to the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. But I think it's a good reminder for us for when you're, what is it, November, so when end of January, February, whenever it is you're hitting Leviticus or wherever it is in your annual reading and you're saying, I'm struggling here, there's hope pressed through. There is, there is goodness in reading God's word because all scripture is profitable for teaching and for rebuke and training and righteousness and correction. So, so here's Peter just showing us a marvelous example of saying, look, look and see what God's word says and the hope it has. All right, let me read on verse eight. We'll read eight and nine. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Pattern in history to counter the false teachers. And secondly, now he turns to God's patience in dealing with humanity. False teachers are saying this, I am telling you, here's, here's how you should regard what we might perceive as a delay in God's plan. It is not a delay in God's plan. God's not moving dates ahead. God has his plan, but from our end, what looks slow, he says, here's how you should see it. The false teachers are attacking God's character by essentially saying God lies. 
yeah, you've got prophets who predict this king coming in majesty and glory and power. And yeah, Jesus said it, but he's not coming. And here we are 2,000 years later, and, and there's only less people who, who believe in the return of Jesus Christ or care about it. But Peter says, and he starts this by saying, don't overlook this fact. Don't, don't skip past this. Don't misunderstand. This is, this is Peter in his traditional fashion of saying, let me remind you again to not forget something here. You've been taught this. Now let me remind you to hold on to it. What some might perceive as a delay in God's plan is not partly, he says first, because of how we reckon time. God doesn't reckon time the way we do. God is eternal. You and I have all been born into earth. Uh, we will live on from this point on, it, it, we'll live forevermore, but we are bound by time and space. That's all we know as human beings. We, we understand what time and space and its boundaries and limitations are, and we live constantly governed by the clock. The, when is he going to be done talking, and then what do we have to do this afternoon, and, and all of it is back to that schedule and that, that clock, because we are bound in that. That's what we know. God is not. And so what seems like an enormous amount of time to you and I is not to God. But more importantly, Peter reminds of this. God is being patient with sinners. That, that the, the, this length of time is allowing for God to proclaim his gospel so that more people can respond in repentance and turn to him. The fact that the day of the Lord has not happened is a reflection of God's mercy. As long as God waits, there is still time. And the irony in all this is that the very argument the false teachers are using against Jesus and the apostles is the very reason that there's any hope for them at all. It is that God in his patience is allowing that his word is still proclaimed, that perhaps some might repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. The hard part, admittedly, is the end of verse 9. The Lord does not wish that anyone perishes, but all should reach repentance. That can be a difficult verse. If we say, okay, God truly, what it says here is God truly desires that all people come to repentance and be saved, then why is the path that leads to destruction so wide and so many are on it? Why do so many perish if God desires their repentance? First, let's establish clearly the theme of patience is all throughout Scripture. When Moses passes, or God passes by Moses, actually, in Exodus chapter 34, God proclaims himself, Yahweh proclaims himself to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Joel recounts exactly that description when he speaks about God as being merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Paul in Romans 2 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? And patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you not see that, that God is being patient and forbearing that you might turn to him? The Old Testament story of Jonah stands out as a very clear example of the patience of man versus the patience of God in rescuing sinners, right? Jonah's ready for them to be annihilated. God is ready to save the people of Nineveh. God is ready to rescue them. And so we see God's patience. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 also speaks of God's desire to save. It says, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So 
we are faced then with having to reconcile God's stated desire to save all with the reality that he also does not choose all to be saved. I won't spend a whole nother sermon on going down the trail of election, but it is what we teach as a church that God is choosing people, has chosen people for salvation because we believe both are taught in God's word that he desires all to be saved and all to repent and none to perish, and that he also elects men unto salvation. And what I say to you, friends, is that's a tension we have to accept. We we have to understand that that's a tension in our minds, not in the mind of God. For us, that seems almost irreconcilable how those go together, but it's not so in the mind of God because God's thoughts and God's ways are far higher than our ways. He declares that, in fact. He is transcendent. He is eternal, we are finite, we are limited. God can fully and legitimately desire the salvation of all while for the sake of his glory, only actually saving a portion of the all. Those who by his grace are redeemed through the narrow gate that leads to life. What God desires and what God decrees can seem different to us without nullifying one or the other. And if you want to think this through some more, then I would encourage you this afternoon is spend some time reading Romans 9 through 11, where both of these things are shown to us. Both are taught. It's a difficult section. But the reality is that when you come to the end of it, Paul's doxology tells you everything you need to know about what he's just taught. Because at the end of it in Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For, though, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. It's Paul coming to the end of what he knows is a difficult section that in our limited thinking is hard to work through and saying God's wisdom is beyond our limited capacity. His judgments are not up for our scrutiny. His ways are not up there for us to map out and determine, well, actually, God, you should take this path. This would be the better one. That's what he means by inscrutable. It's sort of the mapping out of his ways because he is the sovereign creator and Lord of his creation. And ultimately, as Paul concludes in, in, there in Romans 11, in the end, God's glory is the supreme end of all that he does. God in his grace allows us to see and to experience his glory because apart from that, we would have nothing and we have, would have no hope. But God shows us his glory and even magnifies it in these works of salvation. And so, friends, the answer on this is be content with a humble maintaining of a worshipful mystery here. Um, Being able to say, I don't fully grasp this in my limited human understanding, but I also know what Scripture teaches, and I can worship and glorify and honor God. Peter goes on and he ends this section finally with verse 10 and says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In the Greek text, first word in that phrase is will come. 
Ours says, um, but, it, it, in the Greek it's will come, but. I've said to you before, he puts it first because he wants the emphasis on certainty. He will come, be certain of this. I know what they're telling you, but based on the pattern of history and the patience of God, he will come. And he wants to emphasize the fact that the coming of the day of Christ's rule, the coming of the day of God's judgment on the world is not only definite, but it will come without warning, completely like a thief. it's hard for us to imagine anything that could come without warning anymore because somehow we're going to be warned about it. The ring doorbell will go off. Something will tell us that something bad's going to happen. The illustration he uses here is to say to people, he will come suddenly. And when he comes, you, you, you won't be expecting it in that moment. For all of man's predictions and sign watching, the word of God says Jesus will return suddenly and with power like the world has never seen. The universe God created that we saw described earlier as the the heavens and the earth will disappear. This picture here is of the heavens passing away and the structure of what he's made being destroyed by fire. For all of man's denials about Jesus, who Jesus is, that there was a resurrection, that Jesus is returning... When Jesus comes back, when what he says there at the end of verse 10 is that this will be exposed, um, especially, uh, where are we, verse 10, um, lost my place, uh, burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. For all of the attempts to dismiss Christ, dismiss the resurrection, Peter's last word in this portion is, when he comes, it will all be laid bare. There will be no hiding at that point from, from Jesus Christ. You will not hide from his judgment. It will be laid bare. I, I, let me just say this to you just in, in closing this morning. We, we tend to think of Christ's return. I, I think if, if you had to do a graph of this, as far as Christian thinking about the return of Christ, I, I fear that sometimes it would be commensurate with major world events, especially international events, especially Middle Eastern events, that it sort of, it rises coupled with those events. And I understand that. I understand how we get curious and we get to think in those things. But what Peter wants us to know is Jesus is returning. And Jesus will return and it will be sudden like a thief. And the, the reason that he's laid all this out is so that next week when we read verse 11, he can say, therefore the real issue here is not about sign seeking or prediction making. It's about what kind of lives ought we to lead. If, if we believe this is true, if this, the false teachers he's dismissed out and out and said, history shows they're wrong, the patience of God shows they're wrong, I stand on the authority of the prophets and the apostles and saying Jesus will return, therefore the question then is what then? How ought we to live if we believe that our Savior could come at any moment? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are eager. The Apostle John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. We long for the day of your return, for the establishment of your kingdom, for the deliverance of your people. It's difficult for us to be eager for your judgment on the world, and yet we know that is reflective of your perfect justice. And when your wrath is poured out, it will be done perfectly. And so, Lord, we pray that justice will prevail, that your word will be done as you say. Lord, we thank you for the hope of your return, that it solidifies in our minds the the fact that there is so much more to come, that what we are living for today ultimately is 
is resting in what we were singing earlier about that anchor that's hid behind the veil that's held there by you, that, that we are indeed going to enter into your presence. We are going to know as we are known, we are going to see our Savior and experience eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And we thank you for that, a place where there is no more sin, no more tears, no more sorrow or suffering. Lord, we praise you for that. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning for whom that hope is not real, who is uncertain about your return or the work of Jesus Christ, Lord, would today be the day that your spirit would open their eyes, cause them to see that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was to pay the price for sinners, that he might rescue them, that the perfect sinless lamb would, would be sacrificed in death, so that he might experience the wrath of God the Father and take the justice and the punishment that we would deserve, but that by trusting in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, that there is forgiveness and life that is eternal, that there is hope and an anchor that goes beyond the veil. Lord, in all of these things, I pray that we as a church would would stand fast on your truth, that as the scoffing grows louder, as the opposition and hatred increases, that we would be firmly grounded in our belief that what we do, what we are committed to ultimately is your glory, that the proclamation of who you are, the glorious spread of your fame and your name, that that would just capture our hearts that as we live in light of the return of Jesus Christ, we would live as people who would want to manifest your glory in all that we do. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and the Word to equip us to live lives of godliness before you. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.